Um, we're in a series this term uh, entitled Rooted in Christ. There's a picture here that was painted uh, in the summer as part of our summer camp, which we've been using as a backdrop because it picks up on some of the things that we want to be focused on this term, that Christ is wonderful. Jesus is wonderful in so many ways. This picture is about being securely rooted, established firmly on him. We can trust him. Uh, He is a foundation for our lives, but there's life in him as well, and that life multiplies. So we've had a couple of weeks in this series already. I spoke three weeks ago about being uh, rooted in God's word. A couple of weeks ago, Al spoke about, can anyone remember? Confession and repentance is really important practice for us to stay close to Jesus. Last week, I began to speak about gifts from Jesus. And this week, we've got more gifts from Jesus. We're changing tack slightly in that last week, we were looking at those kinds of gifts that um, are described by Paul in his letter to the Corinthians as sort of manifestations of the Holy Spirit. And I focused particularly on one of those gifts, which is the gift of speaking in other languages as the Spirit enables. It says literally speaking in tongues. And I um, had one point last week, which was, let's speak in tongues. I'd like to know, is, is anybody brave enough to wave a hand and say, actually, as a result of that, you did speak in tongues a bit more this week than you were before? Just be nice to know. Great. Good. Um, I hope that will continue and not just be of the moment. I loved Helen's testimony, as I know many of us did last week, that for her, having exercised that gift more, she feels like it's riding a bike with the tires properly pumped up rather than one with the tires deflated. Just everything's a bit easier than when she wasn't exercising that gift. That gift is a blessing from God. What we're doing this week is looking at, actually, a diff, not, we're not going through the list of, and this week, we're not doing like prophecy or miracles or anything else from that list. We're changing tack to another passage in the New Testament uh, that talks about gifts. We'll go there in a minute, but this is where God gives people as gifts, not giving some particular ability to a person, but where God gives someone as his gift. There are some people in the world that believe themselves to be God's gift. Um, There's one. Uh, There's another. Um, This guy, some people are very excited about, perhaps is God's gift in a significant way to our nation at the moment. I think probably he's humble enough not to think that for himself. Um, But there are all sorts of people who sometimes think of themselves as God's gift. The question that we want to look at this morning is this. When God gives leaders... What kind of leaders does God give? What are the signs that, this is a, that someone is functioning within a community in a way that is really a gift from God? Not just someone who's excited about themselves, uh, but someone that God is working with. And of course, different churches have different approaches to leadership. Some of you will know a story that I've told before. Another occasion when I thought to Um, be involved in breaking bread. At the time, I was a chaplain at Brooks University, and it it is an ecumenical chaplaincy, and there are people there from all kinds of different church backgrounds, um, not only Protestant denominations, but Catholics and Orthodox and so on. And I was leading a lunchtime uh, service, and I thought, well, let's break bread. And I got the bread and the wine, and then I got there, and then I thought, oh, this is quite complicated, actually, isn't it? Because I'm not sure that everybody here will go along with my informal approach. So I made space in the way I did it, and I said, well, look, there's, we sat around a table, because there weren't very many of us. I said, there, there's the bread and wine. For those of you who feel able to take it, do. And for those of you who don't feel able to take and participate in that way, because of it's not the way you think it should be done, um, you can just look at it and uh, reflect on it, and may it be a blessing to you. And I thought that was quite good, and that worked quite well. At the end, there was quite a lot of wine left. And I, I had another problem, and I said, oh, no, what, what do I do with the wine now? What are, what are everyone's sensibilities around the wine? Is, do I have to drink it all? Because it's now been consecrated. So I asked my Anglican friend, um, is there a problem with the wine? And she said, no, 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 no it's fine. The wine's not consecrated because you're not a proper priest. <laughs> 
so it's okay. I said, thank you. That's very good. Very simple. I'll take it home and have it with tea then. So there are different approaches to leadership um, amongst Christians. And uh, what we're going to do this morning is have a look at some of what the New Testament has to say uh, about leadership. Uh, There are a whole number of images of the church in the New Testament. Some of them are a bit more organic. There are um, statements of the church, that's us, being a body or being a field in which things grow or being the bride of Christ. Those are all quite organic sorts of images. Other images, um, what we looked at a passage already this morning that talks about us being built together as a temple. There are other passages that focus a bit more on the organized side of things, uh, temple, household, things that are built together with structure. So what we're going to do this morning is look at two different passages, uh, one in Ephesians and one in 1 Timothy, which talk about the more organic aspect of leadership when God gives people to be a blessing in a community and the more organized side of things and the way in which that is described uh, in the New Testament. So, Uh, If you've got a Bible, uh, I hope you do, then please turn to Ephesians chapter 4, to a passage that gets read a lot because it's one of those ones that explains a huge amount to us very straightforwardly. And it's about the organic side of leadership, and it's about the body growing. I'm just going to read from verses 11 to 16. I'm in the wrong book, so that's not helping me. Let's try again. There we go. So speaking of Jesus, the the previous verses speak of Jesus having been the victor in his uh, death and resurrection. He was the victor. And then it says this about Jesus in verse 11. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. No, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Now, one approach to this passage this morning would be to go through it verse by verse and try to delve into all of its riches. Instead, I'm just going to Uh, mention a few things that are crystal clear from these verses, and we'll go to another passage in 1 Timothy in a little bit. So what I have here are some simple lessons in organic leadership. Here's the first one. God-given leaders focus on people. God-given leaders focus on people. Now, you might think that's really obvious, but it's amazing how many people there are who stand up to lead and instead are focused on ideas or visions, focused on policies or procedures, focused on programs or events. The clearest sign of being a leader in the church is not actually that you can organize events really well or put a good program together. It's not that you can lead a good Bible study or even lead worship. The clearest sign of leadership is that people around you are growing. People around you are growing. And that can happen in in all kinds of different ways. When God gives people to the Christian community, to the church, as a gift, because that's how these people are described in Ephesians 4, given by God to God's people, the fruit of that is that people left, right, and center are growing as we all grow up together in Christ. It's a really simple thing. God-given leaders focus on people. It's another thing that we find in this passage is that God gives different kinds of leaders. And actually, these leaders are not in a hierarchy, that, something like 
um, worker, supervisor, manager, or deacon, priest, bishop, archbishop. It's not that kind of diversity, but a diversity of apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastors, and teachers. We often call these five different gifts five-fold ministry. I don't know if you've heard that. Um, I've heard people also starting to call them the apept ministries. I don't know whether you've come across that. Um, it's just apostle. It's, a, it's an awkward acronym, apept, apostle, prophet, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. I just want to take a moment to explain what these five different things are about. So the first thing is apostles. I've got another slide here that someone else prepared, which lists off six different things we see apostles doing in the New Testament. There we go. You might need to turn your head. Um, but in the New Testament, you're, it's quite funny looking at you. You're all like this. It's like you're on a boat that's capsizing. Um, there, are, there are at least these half dozen things that we see apostles doing in the New Testament. Problem solving. I mean, a lot of the t- letters in the New Testament only exist because there was a problem in a church locally somewhere and an apostle somewhere, somewhere who cared enough and had enough ability to write a letter that made a difference. So they were about problem solving in local churches, also promoting unity, quite often saying, could you people in the local church please get on with each other? Could you please receive this slave that ran away back to you as they come back to your locality? Could you please uh, think about churches beyond your location? So they're promoting unity and a sense of togetherness, a big picture of the church. Also developing leaders, whether it's training up leaders as Paul did with Timothy and with others, or going around and identifying leaders in local churches and saying, look, you guys should be the elders here. They played a role in raising up other people in leadership. Also laying foundations. This is something that Paul describes going into a church community that's being formed and saying, well, there are some understandings particularly doctrinal understandings, but also some key practices that need to get put in place if this is going to be a healthy church growing in the long run. And then, of course, extension, meaning going to new places where you've not been before, and uh, bringing the supernatural. There are a whole bunch of occasions like um, the apostles being sent, Peter and John being sent up to Samaria, where an evangelist had gone, And loads of people got born again, but it was when the apostles came and laid on their hands that people got filled with the Holy Spirit. So there's an expectation in this kind of gift. It's quite a a rich and multifaceted gift that we see being displayed in the New Testament. And that's the kind of gift that we're talking about when when we think of apostles. When Paul is writing here about apostles, he knows that that whole range of things is involved in that gift. And people that can do all of that stuff are indeed a blessing to the church. That's one thing. We'll go back to our list here. Prophets. Prophets uh, bring a message that's been freshly inspired by God, spoken to them, that they can speak to others, that strengthens, encourages, and comforts, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 14. There are evangelists, too, who... Uh, bring God's word to people who've not known it before. One of the easy ways of telling the difference between evangelists and those who aren't evangelists is this. Those of us that aren't particularly gifted as evangelists, try to find the people who don't know Jesus but are kind of interested, and they're the ones we want to talk to about Jesus. We, we really want to, to talk about Jesus to people that want to listen, whereas evangelists aren't bothered by that. They're happy to talk about Jesus to anyone, whether they want to listen or not. That's a kind of easy way of seeing a difference between gifts that operate in the body of Christ. Teachers explain God's word. Um, Teaching today is a very thoroughly thought through process. Those of you that are involved in teaching in schools, there's lots of thinking about how teaching works and how its focus is on enabling learning so that the focus isn't just on what the teacher does, but on what people learn uh, from that experience. But actually, um, teachers... Oh, I've got them in the wrong order. Teachers need not only to enable learning, but biblically, teachers also need to speak the truth. It's not just about facilitating growth in the direction that an individual is motivated to grow, but also having an understanding of the truth 
and ensuring that people's knowledge grows uh, of the truth uh, and heads in the right direction. That's the gift of teachers. Pastors are focused on people. The word pastor is the Latin word that has made its way into English for shepherd. So pastor literally means shepherd, and the task of a shepherd is to be focused on the sheep. It's about focus on individuals. When we think of a pastoral, a pastoral gift, it's all about interaction with people. Um, I'm going to use an an analogy that I first heard probably 20-odd years ago, but that I found very helpful all the way through my understanding of these gifts. And some of you will have heard this before. Have you heard somebody use just the picture of a hand to explain these different gifts? On your hand, there are five digits, probably. (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah. There's a guy that just tried to climb Everest without fingers, didn't he? Did you see that in the news? He's got one. He's got one thumb. Can't, yeah, he's got one, one thumb. He's tried to, anyway, we've probably all got five digits. And the picture of this is that the, the prophet is like someone who points the way. Because they've had a fresh revelation, they've seen something that others have not yet seen and are therefore able to point out something that the rest of us can follow. That's what prophets do. Um, the middle finger that you have just reaches out a bit further than everything else and reminds us of evangelists going a bit beyond where most of us are comfortable to go. Uh, I'm on the wrong hand, but on this hand, I've got a wedding ring on my ring finger. It's called a ring finger. And that speaks of the importance of relationships, which pastors care about. So that, that matters too. And do you know, in Elizabethan times, the little finger used to be called the ear finger because it's the finger that you can most easily dig out your earwax with when no one's looking. It's true. You're all looking like that never happens. So um, there's a picture there about getting in to your ear and in a careful way, paying attention to what's going on in your ears. And then the gift of the apostle is, is actually a little bit different in kind to the others, because Whereas those four gifts in many ways are quite specific, the apostolic gift is more diverse. And uh, one of the things that God has given us uh, distinguishes us from all other primates is an opposable thumb. uh, That actually, this is quite a helpful little picture, that just in the same way that it's easier for your thumb to connect with all of your different digits, a few of you are doing this now, yeah, good, than for the fingers to touch each other. There's something about the role of that apostolic gift in joining things up and helping people to work together. I've worked in teams where I've tried to get prophets and evangelists to work together. That, that often goes really well, but prophets and pastors um, often are a little bit oil and water and annoy each other a lot. Um, evangelists and teachers annoy each other a lot. They're specific and focused in the the good thing that they bring. And there is a need to enable people to work together. So all of that is to say God gives different kinds of leaders. There's not some kind of cookie-cutter thing that makes everybody the same, but there's this richness of different gifts that God gives. Um, It's worth noting that God gives these gifts in different measures to people. If we were to turn to Romans 12 and chapter 6, well, you could, and you'd read there uh, that when someone has a gift of prophesying, it says, that gift should be used according to the measure of that person's faith. That is to say, some people have been given more of a gift of faith in their prophesying and are able to prophesy more. Um, A gift of prophecy that doesn't require a tremendous measure of faith might be the sort of prophetic word that you might first share with someone where you're asking God to speak to you and you just feel him say, tell tell Peter that God really loves him. I can do that. Because that's not a huge step of faith. Of course God loves Peter. Of course he does. Now, if on the other hand, the word that God had given me was Peter, this... Sorry, you're just sat near the front. This is why these rows are empty, isn't it? I just... um, That, you know, I I believe that, you know, you, you were 
thinking this to yourself last week as you were praying and this was a concern that you had and God said this and this is your future requires a that's that's within the realm of what happens in the prophetic gift that requires a whole load more faith to exercise and there's growth that takes place the scriptures say all can prophesy so we can all start that but there are some people who are more prophetically gifted and who hear things from God see things more often more clearly and with greater impact and then what we have here in Ephesians 4 um, it doesn't have a capital well, it does have a capital letter but then the whole of the New Testament in Greek was written in capital letters so that doesn't you know everything's got a capital letter but there's kind of if for us as English people it's like there's prophet with a capital P here people who've been recognized it's not just that you're prophetically gifted it's more like this is what you are this is what you bring consistently and there's not so many people that we'd stick the capital p prophet label on but there's the point really is that there's growth in all of that and if we don't understand that then the people that are more gifted than us can intimidate us when actually what the people who are more gifted than us should do is inspire us because anything they've got has only been given by the grace of god and God doesn't love them any more than he loves me or you. So we can, just as this picture in Ephesians 4 is all about growth in God's people, that is true of the people who are exercising these gifts as well. If I was to go back to this picture here of apostles, there's not many people who exercise all six of those different strands strongly. But there's a whole bunch of people who do some of those things with amazing grace and some people who do bits of all of them. And what we want to be able to do is to recognize and honor what God's given and not worry quite so much about the labels, but instead focus on seeing growth in the people that we care about, seeing growth in what we offer to other people too. That's why uh, we run training in, in all of these areas. There are a bunch of people who aren't here this week because they're away at our King's School of Theology, learning more theology, which will make them better teachers in the future. We're also running a preacher's training course at the moment. Um, we have run pastoral training courses over the years. There is some prophetic training that's been going on as well. Uh, that's, there's a season of that that's coming to an end in a few weeks' time that we did in, in partnership with churches in Basingstoke. So there's an investment in helping people to grow in all of these things. It's worth noting, not all local churches have all five of these gifts. Not all local churches have all five of these gifts. And that's a major reason why we connect up with other local churches so that where there are strong ministry gifts people who've been given by God to the church can be a blessing not only in their local church but across different local churches it's a reason why we have a network of churches that take a keen interest in each other's needs and help to meet those needs um, personally I get involved in those things quite a bit um, I mentor leaders of other churches, which is one of those strands of that apostolic task of raising up leaders. Um, when we needed to bring extra support into the church we planted in Kidlington, and uh, earlier this year, there was a, a review, and there was a need to say, what's God saying about the next season of life? There are a bunch of people who are prophetically gifted in this church who went and joined in prayer meetings there, in order to help them hear what God said. That was tremendously helpful. And there's a bunch of people in the church here who have recently been going to teach in the church we planted in Blackbird Lees. Um, and we receive things too. Uh, in about six weeks' time, we have um, a training event for uh, leaders in the church here, what we call a learning community. And for that, to help input into the life of our church, we're inviting a team of prophetically gifted people from the south of the county to come and do for us um, what we sometimes do for others. There's a life, there's life that flows around a network of churches paying attention to the gifts that God has given. I won't be here the next couple of Sundays because I've been asked to go and speak in a couple of other places. And um, 
I'd kind of prefer to be here. This is, this is home, this is family, but it's a privilege to have the opportunity to be a blessing to others. And so this teaching in Ephesians 4, it's not just about the local church, it helps us to understand how we participate in the wider network of churches uh, and, and indeed how we can operate globally. Here's a final lesson here, because what I've said so far might sound like it's all about a few people, but here's the thing, we're all God's gift to someone. It says that when in verse 12, it says that these fivefold gifts are to prepare God's people for works of service. That is, uh, that word service is the word that gets translated ministry. It, it's the same thing. We're all called to ministry. That, that we don't have a, a clergy laity division in which some people are recognized as gifted and other people just receive but rather we're all God's gift to someone in different ways. Um, It's not all about the leader. It's all about serving people. I said at the beginning, uh, when God gives leaders, those leaders are focused on people. And that includes, that's, that's a focus that all of us should have, that God gifts us in different ways in order to be a blessing to others. So those are some lessons in more organic leadership. I need to move on and to talk a little bit about the more organized part of leadership as well. Here we go. Foundations and pillars. And in a moment, we're going to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. But let me say a few introductory things. Um, There are three more organizational roles named in the New Testament. Roles to which people were appointed. So if we could go to Mark chapter 3, we'd see the first instance of that, where Jesus takes some of his disciples and designates them as apostles. So apostles are appointed. It's also true for elders. Uh, In Acts 14 is one of several places where we see elders being appointed in Acts 14 Uh, Paul and Barnabas were going around appointing teams of elders in the new churches that had been begun. So apostles got appointed, elders get appointed. And then there's another category of appointment in the New Testament, which is deacons. So the first example of that is in Acts chapter 6, where the apostles at that time were waiting on tables. They weren't doing a good job of it. There was a need for other people with other gifts to do a better job of it, and others were appointed to that practical task. Um, unlike, there's a bit of a difference here. Unlike apostles and elders, it seems that deacons in the New Testament fulfilled specific practical Functions. They, 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 were, they took on specific tasks. So as a church, we don't make a big deal of uh, giving people the title of deacon. In fact, a very large proportion of us are functioning as deacons. If we think about things like um, the, role that, the role of organizing events in the life of the church or being in charge of a kids' work team or administrating the church's finances. Actually, the people who are members of our church leadership team who aren't elders, we would rightly see as deacons too. It's the right word for describing what, what, um, what people are when they take on the task of all kinds of different specific roles in the church. And these are the, the three different... Um, three different appointed roles, more organizational leadership roles that we find in the New Testament. Apostles, elders, and, and deacons. If we to turn to the beginning of the, the letter to the Philippians, um, Paul and Timothy wrote it. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers, that's the elders, together with the overseers and deacons. There we have it right there. Apostles writing to the whole church and highlighting elders and deacons. And what we're going to do now is turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, where again we have a book written here by an apostle writing about elders 
and deacons. And it's just going to help us go a little bit deeper in our understanding. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 1 says, Here is a trustworthy saying, If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone doesn't know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? And he mustn't be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he won't fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. This next verse, um, there's a translation question around this next verse. And if you've got the NIV from which I'm reading, the main text will say, in the same way, their wives, deacons' wives, are to be women, etc., You might see a footnote that says, in the same way, deaconesses. And um, the understanding that I have of this passage is that what's in the footnote is the better translation. And I'm not going to do a big exegesis to explain that, but as I read it now, I'm going to put what's in the footnote into the text. In the same way, deaconesses are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Now, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So here we have Paul writing to Timothy in Ephesus. And the first thing that I'd like to just draw to our attention is in lessons in organized leadership is that apostles, the role of apostles organizationally is in leading networks of churches. Um, Paul is at a distance from Ephesus and has a, he hasn't, you know, in, in some church settings, what happens is that you're the local leader vicar, minister, priest, whatever, for a bit. And then when you leave, you're not supposed to have anything more to do with the parish or the um, church that you've left because you're, not one, you know, you're viewed as being an interference and um, making life complicated for the person that comes in next. Whereas what we see in the New Testament is that having gone to Ephesus, Paul leaves but takes a keen interest in an ongoing way. He has the capacity, not just to lead in a local church, but to have in his heart a whole bunch of local churches and to help the the people in them to, to keep on growing even when he's at a distance. And through that gift operating, he also draws churches together. Uh, you read at the end of many letters of the, in the New Testament, how someone's about to be sent from one place to another in order to be a help, or would you make sure you receive this person, or the person who's brought this letter is a great person, you ought to hang on to them, those sorts of things. And so these apostles functioned to forge meaningful links between churches, and through that created networks of local churches, and ended up as the leaders of networks of churches. Um, Churches like ours do get studied by academics who try to make sense of us. Um, There was was an academic study done a little while ago about schools, the schools like the King's School that we run, which showed that um, churches like ours, 30% 
of children growing up in churches like ours adopt the faith as adults? 30%. Um, Children that go to schools like the King's School, uh, 80% of them adopt the faith as adults. There's the little academic... Welsh universities, for some reason, have a real interest in studying things like that. I don't know why. So little academic studies like that go on and tell us numbers and figures, and and there we go. Um, But when studies are done of churches like ours, in the early days of churches like ours, 40-odd years ago, we used to be called house churches. I say we, I wasn't part of it. They, some of you, used to be called house churches. Nowadays, when people try and make sense of us, they talk about the apostolic networks. They look on and say, what is it that you are? What is it that makes... Well, you're not meeting in anyone's houses on a Sunday anymore. You've changed. I mean, you're not new anymore, so we can't call you the new churches. Um, what are you? you apostolic networks. So hopefully that makes a little bit of sense of that for us all. The second thing in organized leadership is that actually elders have a multifaceted role. Um, in the passage that I've just read, it's used the word overseers. The word is episkopoi, uh, which is often translated bishops. And these two words were used interchangeably. The elders literally means people who are mature. You know, you've lived long enough and there is some maturity. But elders are also, in this understanding, overseers. Um, We don't see in the New Testament a separation out of bishops from local leadership in the local church, but rather elders are overseers, are bishops, are overseers, are elders. It's one role. And so it points us, this word overseers is about being able to look at the whole, not just look at one bit, but look at the whole. And that is a key quality in appointing elders. One of the questions that we often ask that's a key, a key measure of whether it's time for someone to be recognized as an elder in the church is whether they've got to a point where they've got the whole church in their heart. Because what happens is you join a church the size that we are and you maybe get involved, hopefully do get involved in a small group, a community somewhere. You might also get involved in the kids' work or the worship and get to know various people. But if you're going to be an elder in the church, you really need to have the whole church in your heart so that as you look out over the whole church, you care about all of it. It's not like the Houses of Parliament where people come representing their constituency and argue for their constituency and we thrash out what's least bad for everybody. With, you know, that. But a gathering of elders ought to be a gathering of, of people who've all got the whole church in their hearts. And that's often what the last thing for someone to grow into before they're ready to be appointed as an elder. There's a further facet in this multifaceted thing about eldership, and it's to do with these things of pastoring and teaching. Because just as the word elders is used interchangeably with overseers in in the New Testament, it's also used interchangeably with the word pastor. So elders are overseers, are pastors, are overseers, are elders. It's one and the same thing. So there's a pastoral role. And here in 1 Timothy, coming back to it, there's a whole list of requirements given for these overseers, for these elders. Um, there's only one that's about them having a, a sort of skill, if you like. Well, there's, there's a thing about managing their own family, but it also says um, in verse 3, sorry, verse two, right at the end of verse 2, they need to be able to teach. They don't necessarily have to be brilliant at teaching, but they do need to be able to teach. There's loads else that's there, but the one skill that's really landed on there is to do with being able to teach. And so out of those five-fold gifts, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, the ones that elders need to have some ability in are pastoring and teaching, particularly. And that's just how we see it in the New Testament and how we're seeking to follow on 
So if I was working with a team of elders in, in another church, say, let's put it somewhere else, and I found that they weren't all that prophetic amongst them, and they weren't that able to see ahead what God was saying, I would say, why don't you get some prophets to come in and help you uh, see a bit more than, than you can see? If I was to go and start working with a team of elders, and actually they just weren't very pastoral, I would never say, I think we need to bring some pastors in to care for people for you. It's be nonsense. Because the eldership task is a pastoral task, in part. And it would be a question of saying, you've got you've to you know, pull your socks up here. <laughs> Something's got to change because you are given, you know, you've been appointed to a role where you're meant, people are meant to be able to receive you as given by God as pastors. And if that's not happening, then something needs to change. Either you need to grow in that, or you need to step out and allow people who are gifted in that area to, to play that role. So being pastors and teachers are part of this multifaceted role. Okay, thirdly, character matters more than skill. As I just started saying there, it says that you need to be apt to teach to be an elder and overseer. It says that there's a task of managing uh, your family well. It also says the same of deacons, doesn't it? That there's a, there's a task there of showing that you can manage the family well. But pretty much everything in the list is about character, being respectable, being hospitable, not being drunken, not being violent, being gentle, and so on and so forth. And uh, it's easy for us to look at the people that look the most kind of sparky or bright or engaging or skilled or gifted and, and think, oh, let's get them involved. Let's, it'd be great if they took charge, wouldn't it? When God always looks at the heart. I'm reading the story of, uh, in 1 Samuel at the moment of David's reign as king and the process of the handover from, uh, from Saul to David. Saul was in many ways more gifted. David was quite gifted too. But the key difference between them was that David's heart was set on uh, loving the Lord. And that's what made him a more enduring king than Saul could be. Okay, now here's another thing. I think you may have known this was coming. And this is a point of counterculture biblical teaching. But it does say that elders, it says specifically about elders. It doesn't say this about deacons. It doesn't say it about prophets. It doesn't say it about teachers. But about elders, the scriptures specifically say that elders are men. Um, eldership is linked to fatherhood, to managing the household well. And in the ancient world, there was a role of householder, um, which the Romans called paterfamilias, father of the family, which is being held up as an example of uh, what happens in natural life that elders should be in the church. Now, you will probably all know that there's quite a debate about this particular point. If you follow the debate about the gender of elders, um, you'll probably discover that it's not, the debate is not about whether elders in the New Testament were male. Everyone is agreed that that is how it was in the early church. The question is whether or not that command and that example applies today. And that's a whole other Sunday morning to look at that. Or probably better, a Sunday evening or some time where we're more set up for interaction over it to talk together about those things in order to grapple with the, the debate. For this morning, all I need to say is that it is our practice as a local church and in our network of churches, uh, it's our practice to accept and apply uh, this New Testament command quite simply to recognize that it, it is countercultural, um, but knowing that the Bible is a book that was written in uh, another era and in other places, but it's a book that is for all times and all peoples. And so every culture finds something challenging in it that is countercultural, that jars for us. And our, as I was, this is what I was preaching on three weeks ago. 
that we, we are a church that want to take the scriptures as our, as our plumb line, as our foundation, uh, to defer to them rather than think that we know better. And so in this matter, as in many others, we're willing to adopt a countercultural practice in order to sustain faithfulness to the simple commands of scripture. Anyway, I want to move on to another counter... Oh, there's one countercultural thing. I'm going to just move to another one whilst we're there. Countercultural to have men only as elders. But here's another countercultural thing. Hebrews 13, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. That's countercultural as well, isn't it? That's not... I mean, we live in an era facilitated by... Uh, technology of flat hierarchies or, you know, or flat management structures and you know, exchange of information, meaning that we don't have to have you know, complex hierarchies in organizations. But the scripture says, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. Now, um, at this point, it really matters what you're being asked to obey. It's really easy to obey someone who is strongly insisting that you have a second helping of chocolate brownies. That, that's not complicated. Um, it is rather harder to obey someone who asks you to change the way that you run your small group or insists that being baptized really is a good idea or that you do need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit or whatever. And there are other things that are harder. So that means that elders in churches need to be as clear as they can be about values and practices that are expected in the local church because everyone in a local church needs to be able to make the choice of whether this is a church in which they can do this. Everyone, every Christian wants to be in a church where obeying and submitting to the authority in the church is something that they, they can do wholeheartedly, even knowing that that's sometimes complicated. So that's why we, like most churches, we run a membership course, which is an opportunity for those of you who um, have never done it before to learn what our core, uh, our, our core values and our key practices are, so you can process and go, okay, so this is what you're talking about, and then make an informed decision as to whether this is a church in which you can do this thing, um, obeying, submitting, as the scriptures ask you to do, tell you, tell us all to do. I say we run a membership course. That's not quite true. Um, I have run the membership course for, for the last 10 years, and I've decided to stop doing it. It's not going to happen anymore. Um, several reasons for that. Uh, one is that um, I, do, me doing it, is just a bottleneck. You know, there's only, I have limited time to do it. I, I mean, I'd love to run it like every Sunday evening all through the year so that it's as accessible as possible, but um, run it once or twice a year, and only a handful of people get to do it each year. That's one reason. Another reason is that um, I'd like this issue of everybody understanding who we, you know, what we do as a church to be more transparent and accessible. So, just one will do. I don't need them all. Thanks. Um, I'm going to put this on the screen as well. What we've done, look at that. The font has changed. Uh, but I've put together, with the help of other people, a booklet entitled Exploring Membership, which is intended to enable you to discover what makes our church tick and next steps to membership. In here, our core values, our key practices are explained. Um, like there's a, that's a two-page spread on the work of the Holy Spirit, for example, that um, you can look at us, says some things, ask questions of what it means for you, some pointers for further reading. And then at the end of the book, there's a couple of pages explaining next steps, what you can do with this. And the next steps are really all about talking to someone. Um, the idea of this booklet isn't to somehow switch from sitting down and talking to somehow processing things administratively with a bit of paper, but it's rather a prompt for conversation where 
um, those conversations are needed. It says right here at the beginning, uh, this booklet is made for talking. And that's the idea of it. So what we've got is, is a whole bundle of these. And it may well be that different people, and people in different circumstances, might like to pick these up this morning. There will be people who have been part of the church for a while, and you've just, you, know, you occasionally hear us talking about membership and wonder what that means and wonder whether it's really worth committing to three evenings in my front room to find out. Well, we've just really lowered the bar of accessibility. All you need to do is pick one of these up and you can find out what goes on in that black box. Um, equally, if you've you're a visitor here, and you're with us for the first time, or maybe the first few times, and you're in the process of working out what do you make of us as a church. This could be a rapid route to finding out quite a bit. Um, equally, again, if you, if you are a member of the church and have been for, for some time, and it's just faded into the background, and you want to check what it is that you have once signed up to, um, that's in here as well. So you, hopefully it will be useful for, for everybody. We haven't got enough for everybody to take one today because we didn't think there'd be quite that demand, but if there is, we can print some more for next week. There we are. This morning, my, my speaking this morning was more, as you now know, an opportunity to teach some stuff that's about understanding rather than a preach that was about trying to get you to make a decision, which is you know, preaching's off. Last week, I was all about trying to get you to make a decision, which is to get going speaking in tongues. This morning's been different. And um, that's not just been because of the content for this morning. I've also been aware that the last few weeks, there have been some very distinct challenges. Um, last week, I was saying, let's speak in tongues. Let's do that. A couple of weeks ago, Al was saying, confess your sin, do that. And right at the beginning of the series, I was saying, let's engage with the Bible, let's do it. So there's been a run of very practical and very definite challenges. And I thought we didn't need another week with another one of those. But actually, if in the next week we reflect, about what's God been saying to you the last few weeks? Do a bit more with that in the coming week. And if you'd find this booklet helpful, then pick it up and uh, may it spark many, many fruitful conversations.